How's it going, everybody? This is the Conscious Bodybuilding Podcast, and today we have Dr. Greg Potter on. Uh, Dr. Potter has his PhD in sleep with a focus on circadian rhythm, uh, human metabolism, nutrition. Uh, I miss anything there? No, I think that's more than enough. Cool. And then you did your master's in exercise science as well. So, yeah, master's and undergrad. Nice, nice. <clears throat> so this is uh, probably the best person to talk about when we are discussing uh, the importance of sleep and uh, maximizing your muscle growth and uh, everything you can get out of bodybuilding. So, um, Greg, I, I, I briefly just wanted to um, ask you where the, um, the, the interest in, in sleep came from and why you decided to um, go that route as far as academia. I think it emerged organically over time in that I first became interested in exercise and nutrition when I was young. I always say that I had a misspent youth. And when I was doing my undergraduate in sport and exercise science, I began to realize that nutrition and exercise were only part of the story. And I recognized that I didn't know that much about biological rhythms and sleep. So I started reading some journal articles on the subjects, found them really interested, really interesting. And that also coincided with when I was first listening to podcasts. And I heard a few people speak about sleep on podcasts, tracked down their work, and eventually ended up looking for PhD opportunities related to biological rhythms and sleep, and then ended up at the University of Leeds. So really, it was a way of adding more strings to my bow because ultimately what I'm interested in is helping people improve their health and their performance through lifestyle interventions. And so now I recognize that there are other things in addition to those different variables that I've just mentioned that are also important too: the social environment, the built environment and so on. But certainly sleep historically has been underappreciated in its importance for human health and I think for how people get on in the gym and body composition and so on. And so if you're looking to maximize your gains and look as good as possible on stage, then it's really important that you do what you can to sleep better. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And that is, um, like I mentioned to you, I, I think something that is definitely underappreciated. Um, it, it's, you know, I, I'm sure you're, you're aware of this is just the fact that like, Obviously, our environments today um, tend to not as be as conducive to sleep um, with artificial light and um, just, you know, lots of stimulation all the time. Um, and, and on top of that, I think it, it's, it's still an underappreciated variable by a lot of people. Um, and, and, and with that, I wanted you to potentially get into just the basic importance of sleep for health and then potentially transition into actual body composition as well, if you could. Sure. So beginning with health, sleep is important to all aspects of your health. And I'll, I'll try and keep my answer relatively brief, but if we just move through some different bodily systems, then that might be helpful. So starting with the brain, obviously if you don't sleep very well, then you're likely to be fatigued and sleepy during the day. And that can contribute to things like traffic accidents because you're more likely to fall asleep at the wheel. So it can indirectly affect your health in that way. But then if you're not sleeping well, then you're going to probably have a lower mood than you otherwise would. Over time, different forms of sleep issues can contribute to a variety of mental health conditions, anxiety, depression, suicidality, and so on. And it also seems that sleep disturbances can contribute to processes that are involved in neurodegeneration. And so in many instances, sleep troubles precede the development of diseases such as Parkinson's disease and Alzheimer's disease. And so many people are interested in whether it's possible to improve some aspects of sleep to ward off those diseases in people who are predisposed them for genetic reasons and so on. Moving on to the rest of the body, 
With respect to cardiometabolic health, I'll just use a couple of examples to illustrate the importance of sleep. So one is obstructive sleep apnea is a sleep disorder in which the upper airway, the pharynx intermittently collapses during sleep. And that leads to gasping and choking. And basically you're temporarily deprived of oxygen and that contributes to a host of downstream consequences. So in terms of your brain function, you are likely to be very sleepy during the day and therefore have traffic accidents and so on. But you're also more likely to struggle with your work and maybe to miss days of work too. There are lots of different consequences with respect to cardiovascular health so it seems that obstructive sleep apnea contributes to high blood pressure and also because of that temporary deprivation of oxygen which can happen hundreds of times a night you are likely to have higher levels of oxidative stress and we know that that can drive chronic inflammation which contributes to a host of pathologies nowadays and then if we're thinking about body composition specifically, I'll use the example of insufficient sleep. If you look at all of the research that's been done to date on what happens when you take somebody and you either deprive them of sleep entirely or you restrict their time in bed such that instead of having, say, their usual eight hours in bed, they're only allowed four hours in bed, then sure enough, people feel hungrier and they consume more food on average, something to the tune of 250 more calories each day. But importantly, that increase in energy intake isn't opposed by a commensurate increase in energy expenditure. The result is a positive energy balance. Over time, that contributes to weight gain. But this is all done within the context of a hormonal and metabolic environment that is, if anything, shunting nutrients towards fat tissue as opposed to towards fat free mass and just to harp on that point for a second if you take people and you put them on weight loss diets and one group is allowed sufficient time in bed and another group is not allowed enough time in bed but you control the calories that they consume they consume the same food so the same ratios of protein carbohydrate and fat respectively then what you find is that the people who aren't getting enough sleep lose substantially less fat mass and more fat-free mass, although the total amount of weight loss might be quite similar. And then if we think about immune function, then there is some very interesting evidence showing that if you take people and you expose them to viruses, you basically put a virus in their nose and you measure how long they're sleeping around the time of the virus then the amount of sleep that they get around the time of exposure to the virus influences how likely they are to develop symptoms of the virus. There have also been studies looking at vaccination responses showing that, at least in the short term, if you deprive people of sleep around the time of vaccination, they produce fewer antibodies. And so it seems that both arms of the immune system are negatively affected by different types of sleep disturbances. And then the final thing that I'll mention is injury risk and musculoskeletal health, because in the context of bodybuilding, obviously you're trying to be healthy so that you don't miss training sessions and you want to turn up to training well rested so that you've got plenty of energy for them. And while data on this aren't definitive, there's some evidence suggesting that people who regularly get less than roughly seven hours of sleep are more likely to experience musculoskeletal injuries, such as muscle strains. Obviously, it depends on the type of activity that you're doing and so on. But if anything, that seems to be the case. And so if you're regularly not getting enough sleep, then it might be that you end up injuring yourself more frequently and you therefore can't make the gains that you otherwise would if you were healthy. So I'll pause there because I realized that, that was quite a lot to throw at you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just even if I were to summarize it, it just seems like ev every body system or, or a lot of the body systems are negatively affected by poor sleep. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Body, it's essential. Your body needs sleep. <laughs> your, your body needs it and your body actively 
tries to defend how much sleep it gets. And I think this point is often lost in discussions of the subject, because what I don't want to do is seem like I'm scaremongering. Right. It's very easy to make people anxious about their sleep when you rattle off all of the different health problems and performance consequences of sleeping poorly. And obviously that is the opposite effect from what I intend to have. And so what I'll say is that the human body is naturally very good at regulating how much sleep it gets. And so if you create conditions that let you sleep well, you will get the sleep that you need most likely. It's just that as you touched on earlier, there is a variety of factors nowadays, particularly in the context of the modern urban environment that can disrupt sleep. And being aware of these means that we can intervene to reduce the likelihood of those disruptions occurring. Yeah, absolutely. And it's just kind of being conscious of your environment, being conscious of the things that may affect your sleep is definitely the, the uh, first uh, line of defense in getting enough sleep, I think. Um, I'm someone who has historically, once I learned about sleep, like just tried to implement all of these interventions. Um, I, I uh, had a poor relationship with sleep. Um, I've been bodybuilding since I was pretty young and, and I had a poor relationship with sleep around that time. I remember being in high school and not sleeping very much and all of the negative consequences that came along with that. And I can just say anecdotally, based on all of the negative consequences you just described of not getting enough sleep, I experienced a lot of those. Like I remember having uh, pain uh, and I, I don't know if you touched on this, but like pain, my pain tolerance was was uh, negatively affected uh, when I would not sleep enough. I remember distinctly going in the gym and not being able to be as resilient to training hard enough uh, because it was just such a, it, 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 it was so heightened, I guess. I was, I was very sensitive to the pain that, that training could produce. Um, yeah, and indeed, there is research showing that people's pain tolerance is compromised by not getting enough sleep. And related to what you just said, while the research on sleep and resistance training is very much in its infancy, there have been a few very interesting relevant studies. And one of them came out very recently by a man named Brad Aisbert, who's done some great research on the subject. And if I recall correctly, he took trained young women, so people who are regularly going to the gym, and he basically restricted their sleep for several consecutive nights and had them do a series of resistance training sessions during that time and compared that to another condition in which the women were getting enough sleep and found that sure enough they rated the sessions as being more difficult but they also looked quite closely at some markers of performance and i don't know if you want to touch on performance now but I'll just add this just for the sake of completeness. What they found was that while the volume load of the sessions didn't substantially drop off, so the women could complete the workouts, what they did find was that some measures of performance did decline. So, for example, the average lifting velocity dropped off when they were short on sleep. It also dropped more within the course of each set, and if anything, there's evidence to suggest that performance in multi-joint exercises, and in particular in multi-joint lower body exercises, is probably more compromised by sleep loss and maybe by different forms of sleep disruption, although those haven't really been studied, than performance in single joint exercises or upper body exercises. So I imagine that if you're going into the gym and you're doing several sets of squats and you're doing some remaining deadlifts and then you're finishing your session with some leg curls and some leg extensions and some calf raises or whatever certainly performance in those early exercises is likely to decline in response to not getting enough sleep and you're going to find the session harder and then when you think about the long term if that regularly takes place over time then maybe you're going to end up missing more sessions. What we don't know that much about is how poor sleep contributes over time to actual adaptations to training. Probably the best study on this subject was done by a guy named Pauli Abek a couple of years ago. But 
they used untrained people. They basically took them through resistance training for 10 weeks, had them do a couple of whole body lifting sessions each week. And one group received, received sleep education, the other group didn't. And they found that the people who got information about how to sleep better ended up losing a substantial amount of fat, whereas the other group actually gained a, a non-significant amount of fat. But there weren't really differences in how much fat-free mass they gained, although numerically the sleep group gained more fat. So that's sort of preliminary evidence suggesting that it might contribute to how your body composition changes over time in response to training, but we really don't know that much about that subject. Right. If we could potentially extrapolate some of the previous findings, like you mentioned, of, of uh, sleep deprivation and uh, losses in fat-free mass and uh, uh, and uh, compared to muscle, I mean, uh, compared to uh, fat mass, um, we could probably uh, make some assumption that, that that may continue on as more research develops, right, uh, with resistance training, which is an added stress. Like if you're just talking about someone in a caloric deficit, I don't know if they resistance trained. I know one of those was uh, University of Chicago. I can't remember if they resistance trained. I don't think so, right? No, so I think you're referring to that 2011 Metal Chaver paper, and that was not an exercise intervention at all. Right. Just focused on sleep and calorie deficit. And calorie deficit, yeah. So uh, you you think about adding a stress like resistance training, uh, and and uh, what that might have. I mean, obviously, like at the same time, adding a a stress like resistance training um, may be anti catabolic, but it also it, 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 it's something that's demanding on the body. So um, obviously you can't uh, make too many assumptions, but. Um... Yeah, I, I don't want to get sidetracked too much, but one one study that I will mention was done by Nicholas Sainer and his colleagues. They're based in Australia as well. And it didn't focus on resistance training specifically, but what they did was they took healthy young adults and they split them into a few different groups. One of the groups didn't get enough sleep for several days on the trot. Another group also didn't get enough sleep, but they gave them three high-intensity intermittent exercise training, which is basically multiple cycling sprints with short active rest periods in between them. And then another group was just allowed to sleep as normal. And what they found was that the group that didn't get enough sleep and didn't exercise had lower basal rates of muscle protein synthesis. Muscle protein degradation wasn't affected by the sleep loss. And so given that how much muscle we carry is really the product of how much muscle protein you're synthesizing compared to how much muscle protein you're breaking down, that imbalance over time suggests that it's going to lead to some muscle loss at a given energy balance at least. Whereas the group that did the high intensity intermittent cycling actually had comparable levels of muscle protein synthesis to the controls who just slept as normal. And so the implication is that when you're not sleeping well, if you can still get to the gym, then you are going to preserve your fat-free mass or at least all the data points in that direction. And one thing that I'll add too, which I haven't really emphasized so far, of course, is that if your sleep is okay or if your sleep is poor, then there are lots of things that you can do to improve your sleep. And there are plenty of reasons to think that if you can do that, then you can experience all sorts of benefits. So I started this conversation by basically rattling off a long list of the different ways by which poor sleep negatively affects us. The corollary of that is that if you improve sleep, then you can positively affect pretty much all of those things. And again, we don't have that much research on this so far, but if you look at different forms of exercise, then it seems that of all the different sleep enhancing interventions that have been studied to date, sleep extension is particularly potent because the reality is that most of us have some background residue of insufficient sleep. And so when we give ourselves more time in bed, we can catch up on some of that lost sleep and different athletes have been studied. But if you take basketball players, for instance, several weeks of sleep extension was found to make them run a multi-directional sprint faster. It improved their reaction times. It improved 
some measures of how well they felt. It improved their shooting accuracy in three point and I think another type of shot as well. If you look at swimmers, then sleep extension has been shown to improve their kick stroke efficiency and their turn times. If you look at tennis players, then it improves their serving accuracy. If you look at triathletes, then it improves their time trial performance. The list goes on. So I just want to make it really clear that there are loads of things you can do to sleep better and, and they're bound to, to speed up your gains and make you feel better too. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Especially talking to someone who has a high volume of training load, um, that sleep is probably something that would, would, would really benefit, be beneficial to someone who, um, is training really hard in the gym. Now, when you mention sleep extension, um, it's been a while since I looked over, I, I know I looked at one of the research reviews by mass. Um, first of all, how much, uh, a night is, is a good amount of sleep. Cause I think there's some misconceptions around that. And then what does sleep extension look like potentially? So answering the first question, it's, it's really hard to be prescriptive and it's hard to be prescriptive for a few reasons. I'll give you the hand response, which is that the national sleep foundation recommends that 18 to 64 year old adults should get seven to nine hours per night on average Although if you look closely at their guidelines, then they say that some people might need as few as six hours and others might need as many as 10 hours. And you mentioned the fact that some people might need some more sleep. It does seem that if you're doing high training loads, you might need more sleep than other people. Again, this has been well studied, but if you take sedentary people and you put them through some sort of structured exercise training program, they fall asleep faster, they sleep more efficiently, meaning that they spend more of their time in bed actually asleep, but they sleep longer too. And it's because lots of different exposures each day can affect our sleep. So one of those is exercise, physical activity. Others include things like our exposures to pathogens. So for instance, if you're exposed to a low load of a virus, then that can actually temporarily slightly deepen and prolong your sleep. Whereas if you're exposed to a high load of a virus, it can make certain stages of sleep basically go out the window and it can actually really disrupt your sleep. And so the point is that sleep is very dynamic. And as these things change day by day, our sleep needs change as well. There are also some seasonal change in sleep. So there have been some really interesting experiments of people going camping and these are done by some scientists in Colorado. And basically they had some people go camping in the summer and then several years later, they did another experiment of people going camping in the winter and they compared how long their biological nighttimes were in the two seasons. Biological nighttime is basically measured by looking at how long your brain is producing substantial amounts of the hormone melatonin, which signals the cells throughout your body that it's dark outside and therefore to engage in activities that are appropriate for the dark period. And what they found was that comparing winter to summer, during winter, the biological nighttime was roughly four hours longer than it was during the summer. And in lockstep with that, people slept nearly four hours longer too in that natural setting after going camping for several days. Whereas in the built environment in which people have access to electric lighting and so on, their sleep wasn't that different from summer to the winter. And so the point is that in natural settings, you might find that your sleep needs change over the course of the year too, particularly if you live quite far from the equator. And then another factor to consider is who you are as an individual. So for example, your sleep needs change over the course of the life and newborn infants spend a majority of time sleeping, whereas adults who are past the age of 65 need substantially less sleep than younger adults do. And if you account for that, then there are also differences between people of a given age too, such that there are legitimately some genetically short sleepers. The shorter sleepers identified to date need roughly five and a half hours of sleep per night. And interestingly, if you deprive them of sleep, their sleep doesn't 
rebound the way that other people's does. So if I deprive myself myself of sleep tonight and then sleep for as long as I can the next day, the next day my sleep will be substantially longer. But these people are quite resilient in that way and they don't seem to bounce back as much and they keep they cope better with insufficient sleep too. Whereas some people are long sleepers and we don't know as much about the genetics of these people but they do seem to need more sleep than the rest of us and then in terms of you and trying to work out your own personal sleep needs i think a helpful exercise to consider is how you would sleep if you were on holiday and you could do things exactly as you wished on your little desert island and what you'd probably realize is that you do have a background of sleep loss and that initially you would sleep substantially more than you currently do. And then after several days, your sleep would stabilize at some duration, which is quite possibly longer than what it currently is. And probably the most relevant experiments that have been done on this to date were really interesting. And they took healthy young people and they just let them sleep for as long as they could. These people were literally doing nothing apart from sleeping. And they found that initially they could sleep about 11 hours a night on average, but after a week or so, their sleep stabilized at around eight and a half hours. And so they paid off some of that residual sleep debt. And at that point, after a few days, they realized that eight and a half hours of sleep was about as much as they could sleep per 24 hours. And that was substantially longer than what they were getting at baseline. Now, finally, just to tie a bow in this, we were speaking initially about sleep extension. If you look at those studies of sleep extension in athletes that have showed performance improvements, they tend to have people spend about 10 hours in bed per night. Not necessarily per night, but people probably aim for about a 10-hour sleep opportunity per 24-hour cycle on average. And so if, for example, you can only spend eight hours in bed per night, but you can fit in two hours at one o'clock in the afternoon, then that would be a way to meet that 10 o'clock, that 10 hour target. But again, it depends on your baseline. And I think being pragmatic for a lot of people, extending time in bed per 24 hours by something like one to two hours is doable and does yield some benefits in terms of how they feel and function. Yeah, compared to like your average uh, a s amount of sleep, right? Uh, like that you're essentially, like you mentioned, if you're on holiday and you have no obligations, extending that one or two hours would probably be where the benefit is realized, essentially. Yeah, just extending well, I guess, however yeah. long you're, you're spending in bed now. And the, yeah, the point is that the benefits will accrue over time. So it's what you're doing on a regular basis that matters. Yeah, yeah. consistently having better sleep hygiene and sleeping more. Uh, I wanted to backtrack just a little bit because you mentioned in there um, people who are able to get less sleep and not suffer the deleterious effects of, of um, you know, uh, insufficient sleep. How common is that? And how often do you think uh, people just adapt to insufficient sleep and just view it as their new normal, right? So they they are continuously deep sleep deprived. So they um, just accept the side effects that come along with that. And they don't really, you know, once you get in this state, you almost don't really realize what it feels like to be well rested unless maybe you get a full night of sleep. But I think a lot of people that I've come across, they tend to maybe say, oh, I'm one of those outliers that can get away with a little bit of sleep, very low amounts of sleep, but they're really just adapted to being sleep deprived. Um, yeah, that's kind of a tangent. But... So with respect to those truly short sleepers, if we, if we look at the extreme end of the bell curve, the shorter sleepers identified, then there are very, very few of those people. And I couldn't give you an exact number, but the shorter sleepers that have been found so far basically have mutations in some genes that are important to sleep weight regulation. And the mutations in those genes tend to be passed on from one generation to the next. And so you have these families of natural short sleepers 
But if you look at the whole population, then as is often the case, there's a there's a bell curve. So you have a mass of people in the middle who know who need roughly the average amount, but then you have people at either end of the spectrum who need substantially different amounts. But but I, I suspect that there is a large number of adults who only need about six hours of sleep per night to function perfectly well. I think when we start getting down to five and a half hours or so, there are probably very few of those people. And <clears throat> regarding how people cope with sleep loss, as I touched on, there probably is some relationship between how much sleep you actually need and can generate in your ability to cope with sleep deprivation, as was shown in that study of those naturally short sleepers. But as you were hinting at, it's also the case that there are lots of people who say, I just don't need that much sleep and I cope pretty well. And I just don't think that's the case for a lot of those people. And there are a few reasons to think that. Just to give a scientific example, there was a, a brilliant study done a few years ago by a guy named Hans van Dongen, who took people, split them into a bunch of different groups, and for up to two weeks gave them different amounts of time in bed. Some people were deprived of sleep entirely. Some people had two hours in bed, some four, some six, some eight. And then he basically looked at the effects of that cumulative sleep loss on their cognitive performance and also on how impaired they felt they were. And what he found was that the sleep loss more or less linearly and dose dependently impaired cognitive performance. They weren't as able to maintain their attention during difficult and slightly boring tasks. They weren't as good at adding and subtracting numbers. But interestingly, while objectively that was the case, subjectively, the people didn't necessarily feel that they were getting more and more impaired. And instead, what they felt was that initially they did experience some impairment, but then after a few days of sleep loss, they felt like their performance just plateaued at a level which was slightly below their well-rested baseline, when clearly that wasn't the case. And so I think that there are lots of people who feel they can get by on little sleep, who actually need relatively normal amounts of sleep. And they're basically kidding themselves into the idea that they are outliers when they're not. In terms of whether people can train themselves to need less sleep, I haven't seen any evidence that that's the case, but I'll add a couple of thoughts. One is that if you consistently somewhat restrict your time in bed, so let's say that you give yourself six hours in bed and you need seven and a half hours in bed. What you'll probably find is that that restricted time in bed is actually good for some aspects of your sleep, not for your sleep duration, but you'll probably find that the quality of your sleep during that limited time in bed is high because during the daytime you're building up loads and loads of pressure to sleep. And that means that you fall asleep quickly and your sleep is quite consolidated during the night. It doesn't break up regularly with periods of wakefulness, going to the toilet and so on. Another is that when we think about sleep health as a construct, there are several elements to it. One of them is sleep duration, but one of them is quality and one of them is timing. And so if you're giving yourself a well-timed but restricted period in bed each night, then that regular sleep-wake cycle is good for your sleep health. So what I'm saying is that there are people out there who might not be getting enough time in bed and therefore enough sleep, but their sleep quality might be good and their sleep regularity might be good. And so overall, their sleep health and their daytime function might not actually be too bad. And then finally, I also think that people learn something about how insufficient sleep or different forms of sleep disruption affect them over time. And I have done some work in recent years with ultra endurance athletes who do these crazy feats. So for example, I did some work a couple of years ago with a lady who single-handedly sailed around the planet by herself, which took over a hundred days. And when you think about that context, she's not getting more than five hours of sleep per 24 hour cycle at any point in that race. And she has quite normal sleep needs. However, she's so experienced that having done this for years, she knows that 
that is going to tax her cognition in certain ways. And so she can account for how she's compromised and thereby support her performance when you consider the whole race. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Just knowing what sleep deprivation does to you personally and then making adjustments uh, where where you generally uh, identify that that's an issue. Um, I was going to mention something on that. I, I, w- I will say um, the way I view like sleep deprivation for myself personally, like I'm, I'm someone who needs like eight hours. Like I, I slept seven and a half last night and I'm starting to get a headache right now. Like I'm so sensitive to not getting eight hours of sleep at, at minimum. Um, it, I, I, I will say that uh, it definitely it is something that um, I see often uh, heavily uh, promoted and it's being promoted less so in like the business world and like the, you know, being productive to get less sleep in, in exchange for work. It, it's sometimes a bodybuilding getting less sleep in exchange for uh, like doing fasted cardio, which obviously based on what you were saying earlier is probably not a great idea um, because you lose more muscle mass doing so uh, and less fat mass. But uh, I will say that like my ability when I started actually focusing on sleep and sleep hygiene to be productive during the hours that I was awake was much better than when I was sleep deprived trying to get more done throughout the day, right? I'm able to be, well, one, not feel terrible. So that's my quality of life is much better. But two, like if I'm able to sit down and do work, I'm able to focus much better in that, I guess, less amount of time that I'm awake. Um, so it just, it, it, for me, it was something that was like really big because I was like, okay, well, my quality of life's better. I'm able to focus more. Um, you know, hey, I lost eight hours, which is like, if you think about like, you know, humans in general, we don't lose, that's literally a part of uh, our evolution and something we need. Uh, and now I'm able to be more present, more aware more focused when I'm awake. Uh, that's at least how I've come to view it. I don't know if you have any comments on that. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I think that experience is very common. I think it's also relevant to some other practices that a lot of people engage in nowadays. Take the example of meditation. I think a lot of people, in particular busy people, feel that carving 10 minutes out of their mornings to do meditation is displacing time in which they could be productive. But ironically, if they can maintain a regular meditation practice and maybe they're focusing that on their ability to pay attention, then the additional productivity that they gain by the improved attention through the meditation training more than outweighs the 10 minutes that are lost. And I think similarly with sleep, the additional time in bed often makes you feel so much better makes your brain function improve so substantially that the rest of the time you get more done and so often the trade-off in favor of extra sleep is absolutely worth it i will say that there are instances in which people simply don't feel like they can get as much time in bed as they need and so in those circumstances, the question is, how can you cope with that insufficient sleep? And I, I feel like I've been banging this drum for the last few years, but I'll bang it again today anyway. And it's probably not actually that relevant to people because I suspect most people are taking this anyway. But if there's one thing that you can take in those circumstances to help you cope with not getting enough sleep, then I think the best substance that we've identified today is creatine monohydrate. And a lot of people think about caffeine as being perhaps the way to cope with insufficient sleep. But I, I think the evidence published today on creatine is so compelling that I would certainly recommend creatine before because if you look at the totality of effects of creatine, then it's good for pretty much every aspect of your health. And the reason that it's relevant to sleep loss is that when people think about creatine, they think about it boosting muscle phosphocreatine stores, thereby supporting performance in brief, high-intensity exercise bouts, as well as some effects on things like processes that are involved in the growth of skeletal muscle. However, creatine also boosts creatine stores in the brain. And the relevance of that is that your brain is incredibly energy hungry. And as you're awake, 
during the day, especially if that's for an extended period and you're doing things that are difficult. So if you're doing something that really taxes you cognitively, maybe you're coding, maybe you're learning a new language, maybe you're working on spreadsheets or presentation that has content that's unfamiliar to you, then it's really important to have a brain energy supply that's adequate for the task. And if you take creatine, certainly at high doses, a lot of the studies studies that have been done on this have people creatine low by taking five grams of creatine four times a day for five to seven days. But I suspect that eventually you probably get to similar levels just through a, a maintenance dose of around five grams per day. Then you can probably boost your brain creatine stores by something like five to 10%. And what that's been found to do is help people better cope with sleep deprivation. And so basically what you're doing is you're reducing the accumulation of sleep promoting chemicals in the brain, in particular adenosine and ATP during wakefulness, because the high energy phosphates from creatine phosphate can basically support your brain's energy levels. And as a result, you're less sleepy, your cognitive performance is better preserved. And there are some data suggesting that physical performance might be better preserved too. So for example, there was some work done on rugby players doing a passing task showing that their performance dropped off less after creating supplementation in response to repeated nights of sleep restriction. So creatine is is not only great for your muscles, but it's great for your brain. And it is also probably going to help you cope with sleep loss at those times when you inevitably have to lose sleep. So say if you're a newborn parent, a parent of a newborn, for example. Yeah, uh, that's something I've I've heard, and I've made sure to to stay on my my supplementation, especially when I'm, um, you know, experiencing periods of less sleep. Would you say that someone who's already been taking, say, five grams a day, they just continue on their dosage and they should be okay because they're already saturated? Yeah, and we don't know that much about creatine in the brain. There's actually a related chemical, guanidine acetic acid, which is probably slightly better at boosting brain creatine stores there's some really interesting work by one man in particular on that subject but the safety of GAA is questionable and so it's not something that i recommend at the moment but i do think that we'll probably find out much more about how we can boost brain creatine stores and it wouldn't surprise me at all if the best way to do so isn't by taking bog standard creatine monohydrate i just think that when you combine the fact that it's helping preserve performance during sleep disruption with all of its other effects, right? Taking it is an absolute no-brainer. Yeah, the, the cost-benefit, uh, the the volume of data we have on safety of creatine, all the positive effects. It just makes sense to be taking it uh, regardless. Um, I did want to briefly touch on uh, this is a brief topic by any means. I, I know that, but good sleep hygiene practices, like we mentioned. In the modern, say, urban environment, we have a lot of things that maybe disrupt our normal circadian rhythm, um, and we kind of uh, adapt to that, you know, like artificial light, uh, lots of stimulation, noises, things like that. Um, what are some things we can do to maybe uh, tailor our environment in order to be able to get the best sleep possible? Sure. So. The way that I would frame this is by splitting it into daytime activities and nighttime ones. So if you think about day, then obviously there are those things that I think a lot of people listening to this are already doing, like being physically active. That supports your sleep health. If you can do that outside in daylight, however, then you're probably going to get some additional benefits. We know that daylight is incredibly important for many aspects of health. One of them is just anchoring the timing of your body's clock each day. And in particular, in artificially lit urban environments, there's a tendency for a lot of people's body clocks to delay through increased exposure to artificial light at night. And if you can spend, ideally, at least two hours outdoors in daylight each day, but but the point is that, let's say, if you're spending 15 minutes outdoors at the moment, if you can increase that to 30, if you can increase it from 15 minutes to 30 minutes, 
then that is definitely a win. And if you're very owlish and you struggle because you don't feel like you can fall asleep early enough and you have to wake to an alarm in the morning, then the earlier in your waking day that you can get that light exposure, the better. Other things during the day that are important include coping with stress. So having some sort of self-regulation practice that you can draw on when you're feeling stressed out. And that can take many different forms, of course. But the point is that if you can do things to reduce the burden of distress that you're exposed to, so maybe that involves changes to your relationships, maybe even changes to work, then that's going to be good. But there are lots of stresses that we can't really control. What we can influence is how we respond to those stresses. And that's where things like meditation can come in or breathing exercises can come in. And just as a couple of suggestions, I really like the app Waking Up. If people are interested in meditation, people are interested in breathing exercises, then there's a bit of a divide between people who recommend quite regimented breathing protocols. So certain durations of inhalation and exhalation, for example, and people who take a more sensation-based approach to breathing. But if you want to go with the former, then there's a free app named Awesome Breathing, which is available both in the Apple Store and Google Play. And you can program that to set specific durations. There's some research showing that if you take a roughly four and a half second inhalation and a five and a half second exhalation, and you do that for about 10 minutes late in the day, then you can basically shift the balance of activity in your nervous system in a way that supports your sleep health. And that's also something that you can use during the day if you ever feel worked up. Your nutrition, of course, is important too. Everyone knows that consuming too much caffeine too late in the day can disrupt your sleep. That's really through two mechanisms. One is that it can actually push back your body's clock, making it hard to fall asleep on time. Another is that it will lighten your sleep because caffeine basically blocks the interaction of that sleep-promoting chemical that I mentioned earlier, adenosine, with its receptors. So I think while there's massive variation between people and how they metabolize caffeine based on things like their genetics, their liver health, and so on, as a very general rule of thumb, not having any caffeine any later than eight hours before sleep tends to work well for a lot of people and limiting total daily intake to no more than about three milligrams of caffeine per kilogram of body weight. There's a website, caffeineinformer.com, where you can go to find caffeine contents of commonly consumed foods and drinks, which can be quite helpful. Alcohol is another one, probably not so relevant to the people listening to this, but I'll just touch on it briefly. Alcohol is a sedative and it can lead people to fall asleep faster and spend more of the early sleep period in the deeper stage of sleep. But particularly later in sleep, alcohol disrupts sleep in several ways. One of them is that it's a diuretic. So you're going to wake more frequently to pee during the night. Another is that it's a muscle relaxant. And so if you're a snorer or if you have obstructive sleep apnea, then it's going to exacerbate those. It also seems to, in particular, block rapid eye movement sleep, which is very important to things like emotion regulation and creativity. But as is true of many substances, the relationship between alcohol and sleep is kind of complex because there are also people who are dependent on alcohol. And when they go through alcohol withdrawal, that can ruin their sleep. But I won't go into that now. Before sleep, you need to give yourself enough time to wind down. And so recommendations vary, but I think at minimum, you want to give yourself at least an hour. And in this pre-sleep period, I think the ideal time at which to dim the lights is probably about three hours before sleep. There's a really good consensus statement on this by some brilliant chronobiologists published very recently. And at this time, you in particular want to reduce your exposure to overhead light and overhead high intensity light that contains lots of short wavelength light in particular. And that might look white, it might look blue, but definitely try and minimize your exposure to that type of light. And instead you want your light environment to be kind of romantic. So think warm colors and if possible, 
go for lamps that are a little bit lower in the environment rather than overhead. So if you think about your ancestors, they would have camped out by firelight. And in many ways, we should try and mimic that nowadays too. With respect to other behaviors at this time, I think you, you certainly want to finish your final calorie intake of the day, probably by two hours before you go to sleep or so. And ideally, you don't want to go to bed too hungry or too full. Either of those can disrupt sleep. And then regarding relaxing activities at this time, I think listening to music that chills you out can be a really good option. Reading a book can be great. Having a hot shower for 10 minutes or so in the one to two hours before bed can be really helpful because it basically helps you lose heat more quickly from your core. And it's a drop in core temperature that occurs around the time you go to sleep. And that facilitates sleep onset and helps you stay asleep too. And then finally, there is device use before sleep. And as a general rule, I think switching off your devices at least half an hour before bed works well and it's doable. Ideally, turn your smartphone off, keep it out of your bedroom, only turn it on again the same once you're up the next day. Yeah. The issue with smartphones is not the light exposure so much as it is the, the content and how stimulating that can be and the fact that you can lose your sense of time passing. And then finally, with respect to the bedroom environment, I think if you can get yourself a good mattress, so something that supports you. So if, if you're a big guy like you, Dylan, then you probably want something that's a little bit firmer and more supportive than your partner might be, for example. And in general, spring or hybrid mattresses are preferable to foam ones because they're better at dissipating heat. And if you wake up feeling hot, then that's not ideal. And obviously you want your bedroom to be dark. So blackout blinds or an eye mask can be helpful and quiet. So earplugs can be helpful, but there are also other devices that can help with noise too. So for example, you might find if you use a fan to keep you cool, then that has the dual purpose of also drowning out noises that would otherwise wake you up. So that was a, a big, long list. Sorry for the diatribe. No, not at all. That's, Super, super helpful. And uh, obviously, there are a lot of things that come along with it. Uh, and potentially identifying some things that uh, particularly impact you because I've, I've optimized a lot of these things over time. And there were certain things that I did that made um, even bigger differences in, in my actual sleep quality. Uh, one of which was like you mentioned was keeping the phone out of the room, which is one that I assume uh, many people have a hard time adhering to. I mean, I did myself, but it's been one that's been really a really big game changer like i have the rule of no phones in the bedroom i keep my phone charging in another room one i um i go to sleep faster my sleep latency is better but i also don't wake up and check my phone and stay in bed for a long period of time so it gets me up because you're like you have this motivation to go check your phone so it's like okay boom you're out of bed when you need to get out of bed uh, mm. so that one was really huge for me for uh normalizing my sleep pattern because it's like okay you know, wind down and have this time that I start eating. I start doing all my, my, my normal sleep hygiene stuff. Phone goes in the other room. And then, okay, I wake up at this given time. Oh, I want to go check my notifications. I got to get up, go in the other room. So for me, that was, was a really uh, big kind of like not hack, but uh, something that was really uh, beneficial for myself um, and a, a number of other things. Um, I'm going to get you out of here in one sec. Briefly, if you do have sleep apnea, you mentioned it a couple of times, how important is mm -hmm. it to manage that? Really important. Yeah. And when people who have had undiagnosed sleep apnea for a long period get diagnosed and get treated, they often describe it as being like a, a brain transplant because they just feel so different. You didn't get enough sleep last night, Dylan. <laughs> uh, only 30 minutes. Uh, not enough. <laughs> Let's go back to sleep. <laughs> yeah. No, just, just going back to sleep apnea. If, if you sleep, if you share your bed with someone and they've ever seen you stop breathing during the night, or if you snore heavily, or if you're very sleepy during the day and find it hard to concentrate, then I recommend going to a website, which is stopbang, S-T-O-P-B-A-N-G dot C-A, where you can find a free questionnaire, which is widely used in medical settings 
to give a rough estimate of how likely it is that you have obstructive sleep apnea or some other type of sleep apnea. Stop bang is just an acronym for risk factors that expose people to sleep apnea. And if your score on that suggests that you might have it, then I would definitely seek further guidance, speak to your medical doctor for more information, and you might end up at a, a sleep center near you. And then in terms of treatment, positive airway pressure or continuous positive airway pressure is the most common treatment for obstructive sleep apnea, but there are several varieties or endotypes of sleep apnea and each requires different treatments. So for example, some people have sleep apnea because of the structure of their mouth or their upper airway. Other people have sleep apnea because of the way that their brain regulates their breathing in particular, they have something called high loop gain or loop control. And that can basically strongly affect how their breathing responds to changes in the concentration of carbon dioxide in the blood. So all these different types of sleep apnea need slightly different treatments. And that's why it's really important to seek medical guidance. But if you do have it and you get treated, then it can be so transformative. And also not only in terms of how you feel, but in terms of your health too. So when undiagnosed people get treated, you tend to see things like reductions in blood pressure, improvements in erectile function, which is probably of interest to some people listening to this, improvements in blood sugar regulation. You might see some change in eating behavior and body composition too. There's not that much research on those, but there's tentative evidence that that's the case. So it's definitely worth getting checked out. Yeah. I mean, you can kind of assume with sleep deprivation, the kind of side effects that come along with that, the increased ghrelin, decreased uh, leptin, I believe is, is how it works. Uh, if you have sleep apnea and your sleep quality is reduced, you're essentially getting less sleep, even if you're in the bed for you know a period of time. So you can maybe make some assumption that that might be similar. I know that for myself, I was generally a lot more hungry before I treated my sleep apnea. Um, and, and a lot of the things that plague bigger bodybuilders, like higher blood pressure, like uh, poor glucose regulation, high oxidative stress, uh, you're just compounding it by not managing something like sleep apnea. Um, so that's not a great place to be in for, for health uh, as well, as well as quality of life. Uh, Dr. Potter, I appreciate you coming on. I had one thing my girlfriend asked me to ask you. Uh, I'm not, you probably haven't looked into this research at all, but she uh, is into spiders, if you can't tell. Uh, there's like four enclosures right here. Oh, I was wondering about this, right? Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes you can see them crawling. There's one right here. Um, <laughs> but she found, came across a study, I think, on Reddit about jumping spiders. Uh, one, she's actually breeding them currently uh, and, uh, and them having REM sleep. I don't know if you've seen anything about arachnids and REM sleep, but uh, she was curious if you had seen any of that. Oh, interesting. Yeah, no, I, I don't know. So, so normally in REM sleep, most of your muscles are paralyzed, presumably so you don't act out your dreams. And you tend to see that in other animals too. So just as an example of this, some marine animals, pinnipeds like fur seals, they don't get any REM sleep when they're, when they're in the water because they can't just stop swimming. But then when they come on land, they get REM sleep. And so it's like they catch up for lost REM sleep in that way. But sleep in arachnids, that that is not my yeah, niche. Sure. Yeah, right. <laughs> she's, she's she's total geeked out about all of this. So she just reads tons of tons of stuff and can talk about spiders for, for hours. But yeah, I just wanted to throw no, it out so she's happy. The the only research on arachnids that comes to mind, and I and I might be completely misrepresenting this, and it's completely off topic. <laughs> it was comparing how different substances affect the quality of the webs that they weave together and oh, it was comparing caffeine and lsd and some yeah. others and yeah, i think it was published in well, i think the cat i think the caffeine one okay. was really strange yeah, and yeah. then some some of the that anti-caffeine zealots now hold that up as if it means something to human biology it's just absolute right. nonsense it's, no, it's really entertaining but yeah yeah like extrapolating arachnid uh, uh biology to humans yeah yeah right uh, <laughs> but right, sorry right. yeah no no that's definitely at least at least entertaining if anything 
Uh, well, Dr. Potter, I'll let you get out of here. Um, where can people find you? And uh, I know you offer some other services. Maybe you can talk about those a little bit too. Sure. Yeah, you can find me, find my website, which is gregpotterphd.com. I'm on social media at gregpotterphd. Probably use Instagram most. I'm slightly allergic to social media, but I do sometimes put out content on that and I try and make it helpful. Yeah. And then in terms of services, I, I help people with a few different things. So I do some health type coaching. Some of that focuses in particular on people who are having sleep issues. And I've worked with some physique athletes to address those. I also do some work as a consultant. I do lots of public speaking things too. And I work with some companies, so nutrition company, a bedding company and some others too. So I bounce around between a bunch of different things, but any of that's relevant and feel free to reach out. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, sleep is relevant all of our lives. So I can see why you have uh, utility in a lot of different fields. Cool. Well, uh, Dr. Potter, I, I really appreciate you coming on today. Uh, and uh, this was a great conversation. So I think a lot of people get a lot of value out of it. Thanks again. Thanks, Dylan.